We find ourselves again in Luke chapter 13, towards the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 22. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's, it's on page 872. We are in the final months of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has faithfully proclaimed the kingdom in Galilee, in Samaria, in Perea, which is uh, the region of Israel that's on the, the eastern side of the Jordan, the, the area where half-tribe of the Manasseh was, and Gad and Reuben would find their, their possession, their heritage. Jesus has faithfully ministered the teaching of the kingdom of heaven, the gospel to, to his people, wherever they would be there in Israel. And Jesus, who is full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, who is speaking the very words from the Father, Jesus, who demonstrated the divine work of miracles to overcome the challenges of health, to even raise individuals from the dead, to distribute bread and fish to the masses, his ability to overcome any disease that, was, that he was presented with, and, and to do this in a way that was accessible, that the people heard and marveled at the truth. No one spoke like this man. No one taught with that kind of authority. And yet, here we are in the final leg of Jesus' ministry. And while the crowds are tripping over themselves to hear this message, Jesus continues to press in and to deliver a strong word about the distinguishing features of discipleship. Because as far as Jesus is concerned, the crowd has kind of tiptoed around the edges. They're, they're still not quite understanding the significance of, of, of the message that he's delivering. They still haven't pledged allegiance to their Messiah in full-on commitment to him. And... and just for us to step back and to read the, the narrative, the, the gospel record, and to even begin to wonder, I, I think it's, it's good for us to have healthy questions about what is the reason for the lack of receptivity to Jesus' message? Why is he still met with so much opposition? How is it possible that the word of God made flesh can come and live among his people and still they do not believe. How is that even possible? What were the obstacles that stood in the way? And if this morning I gave us an opportunity, gave you an opportunity to provide some input, some feedback as to what you think the reasons for this resistance might be, this kind of... Um, uh, distant kind of apathy and not quite pledging allegiance to Christ. If you were to, to interact with me over this, we would probably discover some reasons. What are some of the obstacles that got in the way? I think perhaps the greatest obstacle that got in the way of faith for those living in the first century Israel, in the Jewish mind, the greatest obstacle was in their mind the Messiah was meant to make their life better. The Messiah was going to come. He was going to free them from opposition. He was going to free them from oppression. He was going to help usher in this new age of, of Jewish nationalism. 
He was going to help them enjoy their families. He was going to help bring prosperity to them as a people. And so as they thought about this coming of a future Messiah, it was all about what the Messiah could do for them. But Jesus' message was considerably different. Jesus' message seemed to disregard all of those Jewish concepts, all of those traditions that they had had come to believe. And Jesus, as he's confronting these these, uh, traditions of their heart, he's helping them to see what the true gospel is. I imagine that most of us in this room, at some point or the other, have either been acquainted with this same kind of thinking and perhaps may have even presented this same kind of thinking in our gospel presentations. So that when we read or quote John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We look at the first, the opening words, For God so loved the world... And what we see in those words is that God sets his uh, affection on the world and it demonstrates a value, a a worthiness of the world itself. We see that the object of God's love is what's being described in this verse rather than the nature of that love that is so uh, inexplicable so beyond our imagination in describing the wonder of the extraordinary love of God, instead we twist this verse to read ourselves into the value of God's love. Us as being the center of that verse rather than God being the center of that verse. So that when we come to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That should be the correlating truth to help us realize that God's love for us was not because of some inherent value in us, but to demonstrate the immeasurable wonder and majesty of his love, to draw attention to the grandeur of God, not the worthiness of us. John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, in his final chapter is a prayer related to this truth. Just bear with me as I read um, a a little bit of this chapter to kind of bring this home to us this morning as kind of uh, laying the groundwork for our message today. He says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, is better than life. You have told us this in many ways. With these very words, you have said it through the mouth of your servant David. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. You have said it in the words of your apostle Paul when he cried out in person, My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Oh Lord, how much better you are than life? Does your apostle Paul not use strong language? Not just better, but far better? You are so much better than life that your apostle says death is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To lose everything this world can offer and be left with you alone is gain. 
with all your wrath removed and all our sin forgiven, lest anything prevent the pleasure of your presence, is this not what divine love is? The will and work of God to give us undeserving sinners everlasting joy in God? What else could love be if it would be infinite? What greater prize might we give, be given to you than if we are loved? Oh God, you know I tremble now for fear that many of the ones who call you Lord have made themselves the prize and glory of your grace. How many, Lord, have made your love a witness to their worth? Is then their joy arresting in your worth or in their own? So many decades have gone by in which the constant message from the world and even from some ministers is this, that love means making much of man. And so, when men, with this assurance, ponder what your love might mean, they say the same. God's love means making much of man. No, Father, love is this. At great expense, you made yourself my glory and my boast. The cost was infinite, by which you made yourself the treasure of my life. You sent your Son the blazing center of your beauty and your love. You gave him up to mockery, betrayal, thorns, the whip, the rod, the fist, the nails, the shame, and death. For what? To swallow up your wrath, to satisfy your righteousness, to bury all my sins as far as the east is from the west and in the deepest sea so that I might come home and see the glory of you. This is your love, O God, not to make much of me, but do whatever must be done so that I waken to the joy of making much of you through all eternity. That's our sermon today. That's the message that Jesus has been, has been giving from the start of his ministry. It's been a message of drawing attention to the wonder of God. Not to the exclusion of God demonstrating his care and love and compassion for individuals, demonstrating his heart for those who are around him, drawing them in, seeking to have fellowship, trying to confirm the image of God that's been written over their life, to redeem them to himself, to restore them back to the things that really matter, to draw them back to God not to establish any worthiness in themselves alone. So as Jesus continues his ministry, as he's looking in, in the shadow of the cross, here we are just a few months away from his death, and we find Jesus' consistent ministry poured out for those who are lost, seeking to draw them in to relationship with him. And so as we begin in verse 22, of chapter 13, we see right at the outset Jesus' persistent ministry. Notice with me as I read. He went on his way through the towns and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. In our, in our time together, my, my desire is, is less to preach this morning and more to just draw your attention to the observations we find in the text. 
the things that we see in Jesus' life and ministry, the, the things that we, we recognize in terms of, of him addressing the questions that are coming from the crowd and, and how Jesus will differentiate between what the Jewish mindset and traditions would say and, and seeks to clear the way to a, a path of having true relationship with him through true faith in God and what that looks like. We see Jesus' persistent ministry. Here he is, moving from town to town, which was his custom. This was his strategy to ensure that everyone in Israel had access to the message of the kingdom. He did not expect the crowds to come to him. He did not expect the crowds to to find their way and that he would take up a residence in in a certain location and and then the the crowds would would gather and the message would come. And so that responsibility then at that point would be upon them, but rather Jesus, uh, in in, in a way to, to seek to be accessible, Jesus goes to where the people are. He was not interested in acclaim or notoriety. He did not remain in one place because this crowd, wherever this was, this village or town, seemed to be more receptive, but Jesus, from the very beginning, determined to get the message to the people in totality. So that in Luke chapter 4, verses 42 and 43, we see this as the precedent of Jesus' ministry. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And so he did this in Galilee for about a year to a year and a half. He made his way through Samaria. He went to the region of Perea, which was the the part of, of, of Israel on the eastern side of the Jordan. And most recently in our study, we we found him in Judea and and around the, the towns and villages near Jerusalem. And just to give you some insight into the danger of this particular point in Jesus' ministry, to be in the region of Jerusalem was to welcome, uh, was to jeopardize uh, death. In John chapter 11, verses 6 to 8, this is where Jesus has has been invited by Mary and Martha to come and to heal Lazarus. This was the the family that that Jesus uh, enjoyed a close relationship with. And as remember, Lazarus was, was, was ill, and, and Martha and Mary had sent for Jesus to come and to heal. And Jesus sends this response, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed for two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Jerusalem again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus had been in Jerusalem several times as recorded in the the Gospel of John towards this tail end, the the last six months of his ministry, and it was was a place of extreme danger. And the disciples knew that on on at least two occasions, once in uh, John chapter 9 and once in John chapter 10, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees had picked up stones to stone Jesus. And here he is considering going back. It was risky business for Jesus to be bringing the message to the people who lived in this region. And then John chapter 11, verses 11 to 16, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now Jesus had spoken about his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. 
And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. They knew how risky it was. They knew how dangerous it was to be anywhere near Jerusalem, especially a couple of miles away in Bethany. But Jesus is consistently and faithfully teaching and journeying so that everyone in Israel can hear this message. He was undeterred, faithfully carrying out the mission that was set forth by the Father. This word teaching and journeying, both of these words are in the, are in the present participle. They, they demonstrate this active and consistent and deliberate ministry of Christ to get the word and to, to be on mission as the Father had called him to be. He's active, he's public, he's accessible. Depending on the Father's timing, faithfully maximizing every moment for the sake of the mission that God the Father had set him on. Not deterred by the risk or the danger, not deterred by the fact that that he's already spoken to these people, and so he can just go and wait uh, in safety until the time that he needs to come into Jerusalem. That wasn't in the mindset of our Savior. The mindset of our Savior was to be on mission however long God the Father had called him to be alive. And for those who follow Christ's example, for those who follow in Christ's steps, We too must understand that the mission that God has set us on is a mission we are to do until the day we die, until the day we draw our last breath. So however young or however old you might be, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God has called you to a mission. He's called you to make disciples. He's called you to sanctify your families. He's called you to to train up those who are around you and to help to stir one another up to love and good deeds, to be about the ministry in the church, to love and to serve the body of Christ where God has put you together. That mission that God has called us on is a mission he calls us on till the day we draw our last breath. There is no retirement in God's economy. There is no vacation in God's economy. That in God's mindset, the mission that he has set us on is a mission we accomplish, we seek to fulfill underneath the sovereignty of God, and we recognize that the timing of the end for us belongs to God. And as long as we are alive, we seek to be about the mission that God has called us to as Jesus was on mission, teaching and journeying all the way up to the point of the cross. In verse 23, we come to see someone's perceptive question. In all of Jesus' teaching and journeying, this consistent message that has been coming through is now met with a question. We see that in verse 23, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Will those who are saved be few? Jesus had preached a similar truth in Galilee during the Sermon on the Mount towards the beginning of his ministry. We find in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says on, on that occasion, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And then a few verses later, in chapter 7, verse 21 and 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, in the Jewish mind, there really wasn't a concept of being saved as we would tend to think about it. You see, for a Jew, you were either part of the covenant community You are related in some way to Abraham and thus a part of this community of faith, this this community of of God's uh, covenant people, or you are not. And if you were part of this covenant community, if you were Jewish by heritage, then you were either a follower of the law or you were not. You were a law breaker. And so in their mind, this concept of salvation didn't really exist because it was you maintain what is true about your identity. You're either a part of this or you're not a part of this. And if you are not a part of this, like you're outside this covenant community, you need to find a way to get into this covenant community. So this person in the crowd who's asking this question has begun to pick up on some truths that Jesus is teaching. They're beginning to to untangle the traditions that had been given to them through misunderstanding about how the Old Testament presented this community of faith, this this covenant community, God's people. This would have broken with their traditional thinking about how to find favor with God. That something called salvation was necessary in order to be right with God, not just heritage. This was was not, not normally understood. Salvation in the Old Testament was most often connected to deliverance. It was connected to freedom from oppression, from enemies, or from those who had come and and make life very difficult. So this thought that salvation was limited in some way, not just to the Jewish community, but even within the Jewish community, Jesus seemed to indicate there was some exclusivity even in Christ's most recent sermons that we have studied in Luke chapter 12, Jesus describes the exclusivity of acceptance with God, this clear differentiating standard. If you look up to chapter 12, verses four and five, some of these strong statements that Jesus makes, do not fear those who kill the body, he says, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I warn you whom to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. In verses 8 and 9, everyone, Jesus says, who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the, before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Jesus calls attention even within this Jewish community that there are, there are those who are in and those who are out depending upon their posture and their alignment and their allegiance to God to Christ, especially. And then his teaching on covetousness, which seems so natural in the, in the Jewish mind. The material uh, favor and possessions that they had were, were always seen as, a, as an evidence of God's favor on their life and an indication that they were law keepers and thus automatically saved in their thinking. But Jesus 
confronted covetousness would encourage them to sell their possessions and give to the poor and lay up treasures in heaven. All of this would lead them to consider, have we had it wrong all of this time? And so this person in the crowd picking up on Jesus' teaching throughout these towns and villages is beginning to wonder, what is this message all about? What is this salvation that Jesus is referring to? Have we had it wrong all this time? In verse 24, we find Jesus' peculiar response. Peculiar, peculiar, excuse me, peculiar response in that it's not the kind of response that you would expect. It's, it's, it's actually rather shocking when you consider it. He says in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive to enter into the narrow door. Stop and consider Christ's answer for a moment. First, he doesn't answer the question directly. He doesn't address the issue of how many or how few will be saved in this occasion. His interest is on the individual. His interest is to welcome and encourage and invite this individual, whether there are many or few, to make a decision for themselves to enter into this salvation that Jesus has been alluding to. Second, the answer that Christ gives may be a little surprising and unexpected. We would expect or anticipate that Jesus' answer would be to believe, not to strive. Have faith, not to strive. Rest in God, trust in him. But Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow gate. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? And how does that begin to, to confront our understanding of the kind of faith that we have presented even in our own gospel presentations? What in the world is Jesus talking about here when he says to strive? By the way, we understand. Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And then in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so there is a condition of faith that, that is essential in order for us to enjoy the benefits of salvation. But, but Jesus is, is pushing through that. His answer calls attention to faith. It does call attention to faith. It doesn't minimize faith. It doesn't exclude faith. But it, but it draws you into faith and helps to understand the quality of faith that Jesus is talking about. Strive, he says, which is in the present middle imperative. It's this, this command which emphasizes the personal nature of the one who must carry out um, and, and fulfill this command. It emphasizes this individual nature of, of, of carrying it through. The burden of responsibility falls on every single individual. Moms and dads cannot do this for their kids. Loved ones can't do this for their relatives. Those who are friends can't have the kind of striving faith that is required for their friend. You must strive in faith, in believing for yourself. You can't rest on heritage. You can't rest on the faith of those who come before. It is a faith that you must have for yourself. 
And it is a striving that Jesus refers to. It's the only time in all of the synoptic gospels where this specific word for striving occurs. It's the word agonizai, or, or to agonize. It's to fight, to compete, to struggle. This self-denial which produces real faith and real repentance. Jesus' answer anticipates believing. He is speaking to a covenant community, people who were supposedly people of faith, those who followed after Abraham. Abraham believed God and was accounted to him to righteousness. Uh, Faith is assumed in striving. You don't run after something that you don't believe in. You don't pursue something you don't think is going to help you. So Jesus' answer anticipates believing. By the way, there were many in Jesus's, throughout Jesus' ministry that believed. We find in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That's good, right? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Their faith was only superficial, their faith was only on the surface. They were only believing what they saw. They were only believing the things that were out in front. That believing faith did not lead to transformation in them. It did not lead to heart change. It did not lead to the kind of allegiance that Jesus was referring to. It was just this superficial assent to the truths that Jesus was teaching without buying in wholesale, being all in, as it were. Believing in what Jesus could do was not the problem with the Jews. In John chapter 8, verse 30, we see another believing audience now towards the, the final leg of, of Jesus' ministry, the last six months. We, we find him in Jerusalem, and, and in John chapter 8, verse 30, we find another believing group. He was saying these things. Many believed in him. But then we find something about this group of individuals who believed. Jesus addresses them in verse 31 when he says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus, what are you talking about? We're, we're sons of Abraham. We are free. We're, we're, we're saved. We're, we're in. We're, we're good with God. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. It doesn't matter what your relationship is with Abraham. What matters is your relationship to God that can only be overcome when you resolve this issue of sin in your life. You are a slave. You are bound to sin. You need salvation, regardless of what your heritage is. Well, the conversation continues in verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. Abraham did. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 
He was our murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Did you get that? Jesus is speaking to a group of individuals who believed. Belief is not enough. I want to be careful because we understand that faith without works is dead. So the quality of your faith will bear witness in this next, in this next phrase that Jesus says, strive to enter, which draws attention to effort. It draws attention to effort. We understand that Jesus is enough. We recognize that Jesus has accomplished all righteousness for us. We recognize that he is the fulfillment of the law, that in his death and resurrection, nothing more can be added to salvation. Nothing more can be added to the, to the ledger, to the balance sheet, that we are justified and saved because of forgiveness that comes in Christ alone and not through works. So I want to be really careful to clarify that. But the quality and character of your faith is going to be known by your effort. It's going to be known by your striving. This is the really hard part about what Jesus says here. He's calling attention to the kind of faith that leads to working. The kind of faith that leads to striving and agonizing and working out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The, the, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in a life is that he causes there to be fruits of the Spirit, this outworking of obedience. And as John will say in 1 John chapter 2, verses, verse 3, he says, here's how you know that you know me if you keep my commandments. That's how you know. This message of striving. Jesus seems to demand for discipleship. It was all-encompassing. We, we saw some examples in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then in Luke chapter 9, verse 59 and 60, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Where is your allegiance? What does your faith look like? How is your faith working out in trust in me and commitment to the mission that I have sent you on? And then most recently, in Luke chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus' message of discipleship and striving in faith coupled together with the kind of allegiance that he's speaking about here in his, in his sermons seems so unreasonable, so impractical, and yet this is the striving that Jesus is referring to. A life that is committed to being holy as God is holy. How many times does Paul say to the churches, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Demonstrate the true nature of the work of God in your life. Draw attention to the genuine 
prize or the, the, the genuine product of faith in your life that, that works itself out in this Holy Spirit kind of power that leads to uh, obedient living. Jesus was talking about the kind of work, the kind of effort, the kind of striving that, that draws attention not to personal effort, but draws attention to the work of God in a life. It's the kind, it's the kind of life that demonstrates the kind of resting that Jesus refers to in John chapter 15, where he says, abide in me and I in you, and he it is who will bear much fruit. This yielding to Christ that produces not only a striving of life and an effort that's driven by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it leads to productivity. It leads to change and transformation in us. It's all directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In verse 24, we come to the answer that draws attention to exclusivity. His answer draws attention to exclusivity. He talks about this narrow gate. He talks about this single path. He talks about this one way, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus will say to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter, in his sermon in Acts chapter 4, in Jerusalem, verses 11 and 12, he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And while there may be 4,000 different religions that are available out in the world today, there is only one answer to true life with God that comes through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the, the one way for us to enter into salvation and to have forgiveness from sin is to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and to ask forgiveness and to enter into relationship with him. Finally and briefly, I know there are more points on the other side. We're gonna cover this point more next week and the ones that are following next week. But I wanna just deal briefly with this final answer that calls attention to urgency in verses 25 to 27. Jesus' answer calls attention to urgency. He says, many will seek, this is the end of verse 24, many will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of, of evil. Don't misunderstand. Jesus is not turning away those who have come by faith in him. The door has been shut. 
The door is closed. The opportunity has been spent. And those who did not recognize the urgency, who lived in complacency, who went along for the ride and were waiting to the final moment to finally pledge their allegiance to Christ so they could live it up and enjoy their life and sow their seeds and enjoy their evil before they would have to give that up and to place their allegiance to Christ. These are the kinds of people that Jesus is talking about. It's the same kind of picture that we, we would get in Genesis chapter 6 where, where Noah is building this, this ark for 120 years. He's, he's this herald of righteousness and, and God calls them, his family, to go onto this boat and for seven days they wait. And then the rain begins and I wonder, I can only imagine in my, my mind's eye, those who once the rains began to hit and the floods began to rise, began to beat on that boat, but the door was shut and that is the kind of urgency that Jesus is speaking about here. He's speaking about the opportunities that have been presented in front of the people for the last three years of his ministry. They were aware of his teaching. They understood what Jesus was talking about in terms of of participating in the kingdom of God. And yet, for whatever reason, the message was too hard. The timing wasn't right for them. There were other things to do. There are more important matters for them to attend to. Christ's agenda wasn't preeminent, and so they waited but they waited too long. And I wonder how many of us in this room even, maybe who've even grown up in the church, like this group during the first century, their exposure to the word of God, their teaching of the scripture, their understanding of what, of what uh, the word said, especially Once Christ's ministry came front and center before them, they saw his miracles, they enjoyed and marveled at the truths that he spoke, and yet they had turned their heart away from him and had not given themselves in full allegiance to him. They had not bowed the knee. They had not given up their own personal agendas so they could follow after the mission that Christ had given to them. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't time. There were other things to do. There were other priorities. There were were other loves. There were other affections and, and good affections and good gifts that God gives to us are often the things that get in the way of the very best gift, the very best treasure of God himself. And so... As we evaluate our lives, especially in in, in the close of this message, and we consider what does Monday and Tuesday look like for us? Does it mean we just transition to go back into school? We've got tests to take. We've got assignments to do. Or we go back into the work setting, and we we know there are bosses to to please. There there are duties and responsibilities to fulfill. And and we don't give any... um, attention to the mission that God has set us on. We don't order, order the priorities of our life and, and yield them to him. There's not really a striving to enter into the narrow gate because we, we can wait for that. It's not quite time, but the writer to the Hebrews would give us a stern encouragement and warning, he would say, from Hebrews chapter four, verse seven. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Therefore, he says, strive to enter his rest. Strive to enter his rest. 
What are the things that God has asked, been asking you to do? What are, what are those next steps that the Holy Spirit, you know, has been prompting you to take? Those, those areas, perhaps, of sin in your life that continue to, to, to come out into the open, and maybe, maybe no one else sees those sins, but, but you're aware of them, and, and, and it's just not time yet to, to, to deal with those we're going to take care of that next week or next month. But, but Jesus' stern warning is to draw attention to urgency and to help rid us of complacency and, and those things that the Holy Spirit has prompted us from his word that we need to obey. We step in and we say, okay, God, wh- wh- whatever I need to do, what, however public I need to go, whoever I need to draw into my life so that I can begin to, to strive in, in a way that is pleasing to you, and God, I recognize that you're calling me to, to be active in the, the ministry of the people that you put me in relationship with here in this local assembly. How, how can I serve in the giftedness that you've given to me? How, how can I carry out that, that work of the one another commands that you tell me in the scripture of, of bearing one another's burdens, of loving the body of Christ, of stirring one another up to love and good deeds? How can I be more involved in, in serving the body and, and Lord, how can I allow your Holy Spirit, the, this fruit of the Spirit, to be cultivated in my life so I'm growing in love, I'm growing in patience, I'm growing in all of these areas of the fruit of the Spirit to demonstrate there is a desire in my life to be holy as you've called me to be holy. The quality of true faith will show up in allowing the Holy Spirit's power to to control and to drive the priorities, the decisions in the efforts and activities of your life. To order them and to allow you to be productive in terms of of seeing the fruit of transformation and being able to enjoy in the benefits and the blessings of God working through you to draw others to salvation. May God help us to strive as Jesus calls us to strive so we can show the true nature of faith that believes in Jesus, not just giving verbal assent, but pressing it. Oh God, help us. Help us to live with urgency. And as John Piper titled his book that we read earlier, help us not to waste our life. Help us to maximize every moment. Help us to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Oh, Lord, may the the quality of our life show not only a dependence on you, but, but, but a full commitment in every way of striving to please you in every way so that you might get the glory and you might demonstrate your strength and power through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hope you have a great day.